Wake up, America. It's Morning Air with John Morales. Si, senor. Sarah Tafoya. And Glenn Leverins. This is Morning Air. On Relevant Radio and the Relevant Radio app. Wake up, America. It's Wednesday, February 1st. Good morning and welcome back to another edition of Morning Air. I'm John Morales, along with Glenn Leverance and producer Sarah Tafoya. Thanks so much for joining us on this Wednesday morning here on Relevant Radio and the Relevant Radio app. It's good to be with you on this very first day of the month of February. Wow. Can't believe that January just flew by. February is Black History Month, and this is also uh, National Catholic Schools Week across our nation. On Wednesdays, I always take a moment to remind you to pray to St. Joseph, the husband of our Blessed Mother Mary and the foster father of Jesus. He is a powerful intercessor, so go to Joseph. I want to bring in our morning air team, Glenn and Sarah. Glenn, what are a few of the big stories making headlines here on this Wednesday morning? A happy February to you. Yeah, February indeed. That means winter in the Northland here is half over, only three more months to go. So that's that's not bad. That's not bad. Fun to flip that calendar over as we flip over the, uh, the page for uh, looking at the news here. We find uh, today marks the, the funeral of Tyree Nichols, the young man. Uh, killed while in police custody after a traffic stop in Memphis with five cops charged in murder there. Uh, many will be in attendance, including the vice president, Kamala Harris. Yeah, most unfortunate uh, incident, uh, as uh, as you described the, at the top here uh, in the news. Uh, it, it really is uh, just a, a horrible situation for our nation uh, to have to deal with this, uh, this real crime uh, by those five police officers. Yeah, uh, that beating just a, a tragedy there, and uh, just again, please for 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 prayers, uh, for peace in the situation around this, or response to this, and for how police departments operate around the country. Meanwhile, our Holy Father Pope Francis uh, said mass uh, b- before over a million faithful in uh, Congo, asking people uh, to forgive those who have harmed them. Um, Holy Father's uh, day two of his six-day uh, trip. This is his fortieth apostolic uh, trip and his fifth uh, voyage uh, to Africa. So uh, apparently, he is extremely well received there in Congo. Yeah, a million people, you know someone was sitting in someone else's pew. I mean, my goodness. Actually, it was at the airport, and they had a million people there, like you said, in a country with 52 million Catholics, uh, people kind of camping out at the airport uh, the night before even to, to be there. Uh, uh, the uh, Holy Father uh, did Mass in French. Uh, the homily was done in Italian, translated into French, and uh, just, uh, just amazing. It's part of his, his road trip this week that also will include a, a stop in the very impoverished South Sudan later in the week, too. And uh, this really is the, the future of the Catholic Church, Africa, where the church uh, is growing unlike uh, in other parts of the world. So uh, it, it's great to see uh, the Holy Father uh, uh, really being uh, well-received and loved uh, by uh, the uh, Congolese uh, people uh, in Africa. Yeah, explosive growth of the church in Africa. And then good to see the Holy Father with his bad knee and all well enough to travel. Absolutely, because that was he had postponed his original trip because of that knee. Ashley Narona, our Rome correspondent, will have much more coming up uh, in a little bit here on the show uh, live from Rome. Um, I understand that the uh, father of the candy peeps is in the news this morning. 
Yeah, here we are. We talk about uh, Easter size services and more here a little bit before Lent starts, but talking some Easter candy, those marshmallow peeps, the uh, man who helped mass produce those has passed away at the uh, Just Born Candy Company. They say, Ira, Bob Bourne died Sunday at the age of 98. Who would have thought those things would lead to a long life? Uh, maybe maybe he doesn't eat them. I don't know. Uh, you guys like uh, like the peeps at all? Oh man, peeps. Those are those are the favorite one of the favorite things on the shelves. You know Easter is around the corner when you start seeing those at your local uh, grocery store and drug stores, those popping up. You know what? It's kind of hard to it's kind of like that Cadbury egg. You got to have just one. Just it seems like it's a mandatory near Easter ritual, you know, to celebrate that uh, Christ is risen. Have some marshmallow that's been sitting on the shelf for <laughs> weeks and weeks. You know, I feel totally uh, out of touch because I don't remember uh, eating Peeps. Uh, maybe I did. I just didn't know what it was called. Well, you know, eating them isn't the only thing that can be done with them. Uh, you know, of course, radio filled with uh, goofy little pranks. And, uh, you know, we learned over over time, one of the things you can do with Peeps, and this is something to try at home, is Peep jousting. You can put two uh, two Peeps opposite one another on a paper plate and then stick uh, toothpicks in them, and then you put them in the microwave, and as they kind of melt and wiggle around, it looks like they're jousting. So peep <laughs> jousting, one of the things. Another thing they do, and maybe it's just upper uh, Midwest tradition, but um, uh, the, the the St. Paul newspaper will have uh, just uh, amazing contests of people making up peep dioramas, a variety of things, and uh, invite folks to check out TwinCities.com. Uh, Peeps, if you enter that, P-E-E-P-S, I'm sure you will find uh, some amazing uh, setups of uh, what can be done with peeps in addition to eating them, John. So I, I'm not even <laughs> sure that's the primary reason for them anymore. But You know, uh, I thought, Glenn, yeah. that they were just supposed to be like those circus peanuts that you get at Halloween that no one wants to eat, and you're supposed to use them as a doorstop <laughs> after a, a month or so. But I guess there is so much more fun things that you could be doing with the peeps. Well, something to look forward to as we, uh, we can honor this man and his great invention um, as we get closer closer and closer to Easter. This is what I love about uh, morning air. You never know what we're going to talk about. Who'd have thunk it? Uh, peeps jousting. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks again, uh, guys. Thing. Appreciate it. First things first, we always start every morning in prayer, giving thanks to our Lord for all the many blessings, always keeping in mind that every single day is a blessing, and always uh, praying through the intercession of the Mother of God, our Blessed Mother Mary. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Our Lady of Guadalupe, patroness of the Americas, patroness of the unborn and of relevant radio, pray for us. St. Joseph, patron of the Universal Church, pray for us. St. John Paul II, co-patron of Relevant Radio, pray for us. And we always invoke the Holy Spirit when we pray, come Holy Spirit, come. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. You can find us on Twitter and Facebook at Morning Air Show, and you can always send us an email directly, morningair at relevantradio.com. Now I want to talk about marriage. In fact, I just came back uh, just a few weeks ago from an absolutely beautiful wedding in Omaha, Nebraska, of my sister-in-law in the traditional Latin rite. It was absolutely uh, beautiful. Now, do you remember at what age your parents or grandparents got married? Uh, they used to get married around 16, 18, 20 years old. 
Conventional wisdom today holds that uh, spending your 20s focusing on education, work, and fun, and then marrying around age 30 is the best path to maximize your odds of uh, forging a strong and stable family life. Uh, But the research tells a different story. A number, if you want to be part of the conversation, 888-914-9149. Joining us live uh, this morning is uh, Morning Air contributor Damon Owens uh, to share some insights on the benefits of marrying young without living together first uh, that results in the most durable marriages. Damon is an international speaker and evangelist for over 20 plus years. He's the co-founder and executive director of Joyful Ever After, along with his wife, Melanie, a movement to help married couples get the marriage they want from the marriage they have. Good morning, Damon. Welcome back to Morning Air. Uh, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, it is uh, great to be with you once again. Thank you, and good morning, and happy February. Happy February to you, too. You know, as I mentioned, I just got back from this beautiful wedding uh, in Omaha, and so, you know, uh, I, I so much appreciate the, the beauty of, of a wedding, whether you're young or old, but, uh, you know, back in the old days, people used to uh, to get married a lot, uh, a lot sooner. Do you remember how old your parents were when they got married? Yeah, my parents were just in their early 20s as well. So yeah, we that's the memory there. My, Melanie and I were married at about 26, 27. So yeah, definitely earlier. And the, the data certainly supports that. Well, I'm one of those guys. Uh, I was married to, uh, I think I was married to uh, ESPN Sports <laughs> in my <laughs> 20s. I was all consumed uh, in, in, the, in the sports world back in those days, uh, young and dumb, uh, but I figured it out. So I, I got married a little bit later in life. Um, what is your, uh, your thoughts, um, Damon, uh, on people getting made or married later today, uh, later and later, <laughs> it seems? Uh, you know, some people just really, really waiting a long time before they finally tie the knot. Well, you know, it's interesting. I think there's, there's two elements to it. One of them is sort of that personal decision, like you're talking about, where, you know, you meet someone and you can't control, like, when that happens. It's not, it's not like deciding to go to college or, 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 or get a job or anything like that. So there are circumstances, individual decisions for that. I think the interesting story here is coming out of the National Marriage Project, be, because for, for decades now, people have been tracking social scientists, the more cultural trends. And the cultural trend toward, uh, you know, en masse, when are people marrying? And there are cultural factors that are driving that. Things like uh, higher education or women in the workforce or women in college or even just philosophies that are telling people that you're better off waiting. That no matter what happens uh, in terms of relationships, you're actually fundamentally better off in all the categories, financial, emotional, uh, even even sense of joy. So I think the um, the real questions are, is that true? And we rely on people like the National Marriage Project and um, folks, Brad Wilcox, who really do good social science work. And the question becomes, you know, how does that square with what we know about what God created with marriage and what are, what's really happening with either people of faith or people, you know, who may not necessarily have a faith uh, in the real self-identified uh, joy and experience of living marriage. And surprisingly to many, the cultural trend for later marriage actually is not producing happier or more joyful or certainly more stable marriages than what the church speaks about in terms of vocation 
and state of life and the decision to enter into marriage, not simply as a response to uh, a relationship, but really as a state of life that fulfills and perfects and grows toward the goal of our baptism. So that's that's really, I think, the biggest joy to see uh, the truth expressing itself on the science side, but whether it does you know, in, in social science or not, there's a beautiful truth about marriage in the formation and human formation that really has to show up in the lived experience of people at every age of marriage. Damon, I, I can tell you uh, from my own experience, I was uh, petrified of uh, you know making a commitment and, and tying the knot, actually getting marriage, because my mm-hmm. parents were divorced. And I got to believe that mm-hmm. there are a lot of other uh, young people out there who might be going through a similar thing, especially since the divorce rate is so high these days. Absolutely. And the divorce and the experience of divorce in prior generations uh, in the social science data is one of the major factors. It's certainly for the philosophy, but I think individually as well, it plays into, you know, how do you process the meaning of these romantic relationships? Because interestingly, John, the, uh, the age of cohabitation or of serious relationship actually is the same. It's early 20s. So we're having relationships, and the relationships themselves, according to research, um, you know, correspond to the formation of, of uh, you know, the stage of life, whether you're in college or working or whatever. But the question becomes is, what do we do with that relationship? So I think you look at things like uh, extended education. And I'm talking about college, graduate school, or medical school, law school, and you're not getting out of that bus until you're 30 some odd years old. And again, the philosophy that comes with it for um, a certain form of feminism, that, you know, that kind of stability and self-reliance and self-sufficiency is now essential for modern women. I mean, that's the philosophy that's there, but also just the, again, the, the, the flow, the, um, um, the, the way that the culture is moving our young people through 12 years of school, the pressure to go hundreds of thousands of dollars in debt into college, and then the search for a job that's never in your field, and then paying off of that debt. And then again, if you're in extended school, and you're looking up and you're 30 years before you're getting off the bus. So there does need to be something intentional on the cultural side that says, look, the, the goal, what is the goal of life? What is the goal of you know your working and of your financial stability and of your relationships? And the religious faith, particularly the Christian faith, ties marriage as a vocation into the ultimate reason and the fulfillment of our baptism, the fulfillment of our manhood, our womanhood, and really of our relationship with the Lord that's preparing us for heaven. So you see, there's a whole other paradigm there that really for those of faith, marriage is not what the social science may call a capstone. And a capstone, you can imagine this sort of the crowning achievement of either your relationship or your success in life. Now I'm ready to get married versus this cornerstone view of marriage where, you know, you enter into this as essential to, you know, to a life of, of God's plan for joy-filled marriage, God-filled joy-filled life. Uh, and that cornerstone, meaning usually younger marriages, because you recognize this is, this is a, a major goal. So that really becomes the, the challenge that people of faith who understand what marriage is now living that marriage in the face of a culture that's pressuring us to look at it as the crowning achievement 
as opposed to a state of life that perfects us. Well, Damon, the, the numbers uh, don't lie. Uh, I find this uh, fascinating, this National Marriage Project, uh, a study that came up last year uh, that, that says uh, that uh, marrying young without living together first actually is the, is the best way to go if you want to have yeah. a, sol- a rock-solid marriage. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And and again, it's it's one of those things that when you most of social science is so hard to get through because it's you know you got to look at how they ask the question, who they're asking the question to, et cetera. But the National Marriage Project, Brad Wilcox, you know, has been very consistent in. Uh, so we look forward to these states of the marital union that you're referring to from 2022. And yeah, we get to, we get the consistent statistics. This is not even a new one. This I've been using their statistics for gosh over almost 30 years that cohabitation, that other forms of commitment that are accepted by the culture, uh, living together, as I mentioned there, you know, these things um, are not producing what they've been promising. They're not producing uh, the happiness, uh, everything from financial, as I said, to sexual satisfaction, to just overall joy of marriage and or the longevity of marriage in terms of the divorce rate. It's not producing it. And in fact, these that, that capstone model of later marriage um, you know, crowning achievement is producing less marital satisfaction. So if your authority is science and, and want to see what's happening in the real world, uh, you're not getting the support that you think you are. Uh, and we look at those that statistics as uh, supporting what we know is true. And I think, you know, some of us, you know, we live in a bit of a bubble. I know I do. And I attend so many young marriages, you know, in the groups of Catholics, and it's beautiful to see and I think as we look at some of the other sciences in terms of things like neurobiology and the brain development and, you know, things about the bio- biological, we're going to see that that early marriage really, uh, you're, you're taking advantage of still formative uh, stages in our, in our being that allows us to come, you know, close together. Not, it doesn't, again, um, mean that you cannot do this later. We're talking about ease. We're talking about the ability to enter into real intimacy in marriage. And I think that that um, the cultural trends, they ebb and they flow. And we're going to see the reality of, of the uh, unhappiness of these later marriages come to an ebb where we're going to see more and more of these. And, and just less common statistically, it says something like 20% of couples of young adults marry for the first time between the ages of 20 and 24, 20%. But there's another 25% of young adults that report that they want to marry in those ages. So you're talking about 45% of young adults that are still looking to marry between 20 and 24. This is not a dearth. And um, you know, I work with groups like... Um, uh, Catholic match, and they've got a big event coming up soon, uh, a relate conference. But you know they're working with these young adults and people of every age, of course. But you're talking about 45 percent of young adults that are interested in marrying or marrying between the ages of 20 and 24. So we're not we're not fighting nature, I guess is the point, John. Damon, they have a final minute. Um some words of wisdom uh, for uh, parents out there who might uh, have a situation where uh, their son or daughter is uh, thinking of living together with their uh, significant other. Uh, what would you say to them, especially when we know that the numbers are not in their favor? Yeah, I tell you, I'm, I'm in this space now. First thing I would say is I feel you because I've got four young adults. Uh, oldest is married. I've got three in that age group. And um, Melanie and I have really you know, we know what we've taught them. Uh, they know what is good and true and beautiful state of life outside of our house, of course, where they need to make good decisions. 
So in that situation, it is deep, a different kind of fatherhood, a motherhood of prayer, staying as part of their lives and really being the model within our own marriages. And outside of those things, I'd still say number one is prayer. Uh, you know, as our uh, young people get older, you know, we don't have the same bed or influence that they do when they're under our roofs. But at the same time, they have um, that relationship with them. Uh, however, it has been uh, is is me- is really the most powerful influence in their lives, and and many of them will. Uh, we love them, and we love them back to the Lord. We love them back to the truth and to the goodness, and we be there, you know, when the hurt and when the fall comes. So prayer, prayer, prayer. I'm with you 100% uh, as always. Uh, Thanks so much, uh, Damon. Really appreciate uh, your expertise uh, and your wisdom. Always great to be with you. And again, happy February to you and uh, a joy. Thanks so much. International speaker and evangelist Damon Owens, the co-founder and executive director of JoyfulEverAfter.org. We need to take a short break. When Morning Air continues, we're going to be joined by our Rome correspondent, Ashley Narona, with the latest news from the Vatican. And she'll be, of course, reporting on the Holy Father, Pope Francis's trip uh, to Congo. So stay with us here on this Wednesday as Morning Air continues on Relevant Radio and the Relevant Radio app. Rome to home. This is Morning Air on Relevant Radio. And welcome back to Morning Air. I'm John Morales along with Glenn and Sarah. Thanks so much for joining us on this first day of February here on Relevant Radio and the Relevant Radio app. And yes, now it is uh, time to bring Rome to home for the latest news from the Vatican. We go live to the Eternal City and our Rome correspondent, Ashley Narona. Ashley and her husband, John, founded the Truth and Beauty Project in Rome, where they take people from knowing their faith to setting their hearts on fire with talks and tours and spiritual direction, all centered on scripture, art, and beauty. Visit uh, truthandbeautyproject.com to find out how you can make your life a masterpiece in just one week with John and Ashley in Rome. Good morning, Ashley. Buongiorno. Thanks so much uh, for joining us uh, once again uh, from uh, Bella Roma. Hey, John. Good morning to you. Yes, the sun is shining brightly here in Bella Roma. And uh, the big story this morning is actually happening outside of Rome. The Holy Father, Pope Mm -hmm. Francis, uh, arriving yesterday in the Democratic Republic of Congo, his 40th apostolic journey abroad and his fifth journey to Africa. Tell us uh, what is the latest. Well, John, since the Holy Father landed there yesterday in in the Congo, he has been speaking again and again about the topic of peace. That's really been the theme of his visit. He's been lamenting the, the ongoing conflict that's been occurring there in the country, really tearing the country apart. And he's called it a tragedy that the lands of Africa, that the whole continent has had to endure so many forms of exploitation and especially of its vast resources. 
And looking specifically at the Congo, he spoke about the history of violent colonial rule there, but also the violence that continues to this day, mostly between clashes between the Congolese army and the rebel groups. There's about 120 rebel groups, and many of which have ties to the Islamic State, especially in eastern Congo. So over the last 30 years, an estimated 6 million people have died in these clashes, and about 4.5 million have been forced to leave their homes. So Pope Francis has been speaking again and again, both today and yesterday, about how that area has been what he called plundered economically and not had the chance to benefit from its vast resources. He said greed has poisoned the country and even smeared its diamonds with blood because, of course, that area is well known for its diamond trade. And he says that uh, the rest of the world is closing its eyes ears and mouth to the dark, darker realities that are occurring in the Congo. And he said that Africa and the Congo really deserve to be respected and listened to. Now, John, this is just the first part of his trip. He There's a second phase. He will also head to South Sudan. And there he will make an ecumenical visit. He'll be alongside of uh, the Archbishop of Canterbury. So that's Justin Welby, as well as the moderator of the Church of Scotland, Reverend Greenshields. And in, in this, this is the... This trip is especially remarkable because it's the, as you mentioned, John, it's his fifth to the African continent, and his it's also his first papal visit to the Democratic Republic of Congo since uh, JP2's visit in 1980. So no pope has visited since then. It was 1980 and 85 that JP2 himself visited. So. Then when he go when Pope Francis goes to South Sudan, this will be the first ever papal visit to that uh, country, which gained its independence only recently in 2011. So we expect to hear a continuation of this message, uh, asking for peace, asking for reconciliation and forgiveness in the land. In fact, the Holy Father used the words "hand hands off Africa," and he prayed that. Africa would be respected as the smile and the hope of the world, John. Ashley, I, I saw some uh, images uh, that were heartwarming of, of uh, the African people, the the, people, the Congolese people, uh, shouting out uh, their love for the Holy Father in their own language. Uh, uh, more than a million people showed up for uh, a mass here on day two uh, to hear uh, the Holy Father. Um, do you can you share with us a little bit of his message at this mass? Yes, and uh, and also one of the highlights of that mass was all of the young kids who were receiving their first communion, coming in their their white dresses and suits, and they did such a sweet dance as they waited for the Holy Father uh, to to arrive and for the mass to begin. So it was really. It was such a beautiful moment of joy. Uh, the people there, as they waited too for the mass, were shouting out, were dancing, were waving their arms. It was it was really quite lovely. So uh, part of the the Holy Father's message was that he spoke about the importance of healing the wounds of the country, and he related them to the wounds of Christ. He says that he said that after the resurrection, Jesus showed his disciples. He showed those he loved his wounds because, as the Holy Father said, forgiveness is actually born from wounds. And we have to remember that wounds do not should not leave scars of hatred. 
but they should become the means by which one makes room for others and accepts their weaknesses. So again, we're hearing that theme of asking for, for reconciliation and peace in the country. And Ashley, uh, the uh, gigantic crowds uh, to see the Holy Father is a reminder of uh, the office of the successor of Peter. Uh, the fact mm-hmm. that the Pope can attract uh, such a large crowd, uh, that he represents Jesus to all those folks. Yes, exactly. And there are people of all faiths who have gathered as well. And the Pope will meet with victims of Congo's armed conflict in these days. He'll meet with various charitable organizations, those who are assisting uh, to bring aid to those, especially on the front lines. So indeed, as you said, certainly what we're seeing is a tribute to the office, which which far and wide people recognize as one of charity and love. For sure. And we have to continue to pray for the Holy Father, for the success of, of his uh, trip and for his uh, safety, as always. Meanwhile, um, I understand that uh, you had an unexpected uh, wedding yesterday, a pretty special yes. celebration in Rome. <laughs> You're right, John. Okay, so, John, this was such a beautiful example of Catholic love and community. So there was a couple in Rome who had come from the United States to get married here. And uh, they, St. Anne herself had played such an important role in their journey toward their marriage. So they, they desired to be married at the Church of St. Anne at the Vatican, which is the Swiss Guards Chapel. So they, the, the bride is a convert to the faith. And when she converted, uh, her family rejected her. And uh, also the family of her groom-to-be, as he became deeper in his faith, his family also moved away. So they came to Rome alone with no friends or family. And John and my husband John and I met them a few days ago. And uh, we were able to fill their their wedding with new friends of the Catholic community in Rome. So they suddenly had a full house of people there praying for them. And uh, the night before the wedding, they had no music, nothing, nothing at all planned. The night before, some dear friends said, hey, we'll do the music. They brought their amazing polyphonic uh, scola to take care of all of the music. People brought gifts. They they pledged prayers. It was just such an incredible moment of Catholic community and charity. So we wish this lovely couple from the USA all the best as they start their married life, John. Wow. It sounds like a, just a fabulous celebration. And was this yeah. a fruit of the Truth and Beauty Project? Well, they had contacted us through that. And so that's how this whole thing came to be. There you go. And uh, they're, they're leaving Rome tomorrow. So it was just a very quick visit. But what a blessing to be able to be part of their sacraments. All right. We go from uh, a wedding celebration to the uh, famous Carnival in Italy. What is ah, happening yes, there? Exactly. So more celebrations indeed. So of course, as Lent is just around the corner, we in Italy are celebrating this time of Carnevale. Goodbye to meet is what it means when we translate it. 
uh, we're selling celebrating it in a grand way. So well, some of the ways we see it is that every Sunday, it's tradition that kids go out <laughs> throughout the city and they dress in costumes and they all kinds of different cute little costumes and they bring confetti with them and they sprinkle confetti on everyone they pass. So it's such a sweet reminder as you walk the streets during this time of year when you see confetti all over that this is what the kids are up to uh, during this time of Carnivale. In the meantime, you can probably bet that we have all kinds of sweet treats to enjoy too. One of those famous is the Castagnole. So this actually originated in the Emilia-Romana region, but now you find it everywhere throughout Italy. And imagine these are little fried balls of dough, but they're named after the chestnut, which is castagna, because of their shape. And But they're more similar in texture to a donut. They have a slightly crisp exterior and a light fluffy center. But then here in Rome, the most famous treat is called the frappe. And this is a, a fried dough fritter. And usually they put powdered sugar on top, but sometimes they'll put chocolate or pistachio or even liqueur. And so these are some of the things that we're enjoying these days. But my husband, John, and I are especially gearing up for a very celebra big celebration that's coming on up on the 18th of this month. And uh, John, today marks a special day for John and my husband, John and me, which is it's our 15th anniversary of marriage. Wow. So, Congratulations. Yeah. Aguri, aguri. Aguri. Grazie, grazie, caro. Yes, so on the That 18th, means congratulations been, in Italian. That's right, that's right. That's an important little note. Uh, on the 18th of this month, we were invited by a woman by the name of Princess Gazine Doria Pamfili. Now, this name may sound familiar. The Doria Pamfili family is the family of the lineage of Pope Innocent X. This is the family that... Um, is of Piazza Novona, the Fountain of the Four Rivers, St. Agnes, etc. And they, it's they who, for example, commissioned Bernini to be part of St. Peter's Basilica and St. John Lateran, etc. So they have this beautiful history of patrimony. And so in honor of our 15th anniversary of marriage, Princess Gazine has invited John and me to co-host her annual charity ball with her. So she's a big fan of the Truth and Beauty Project that my husband John and I run because, of course, her love for art and beauty and heart for that. So we are preparing for a grand ball, John. We are so thrilled about it. And to You're going to be the grand belle of the ball. <laughs> Well, there you go. I like it. Yes, they're coming from uh, the U.S. and from Canada and, and from all over Europe. So we are so excited to celebrate this, John. Uh, that is so awesome. Again, just uh, congratulations. Yeah. It, it is well, what a way you. to celebrate for sure. And then tomorrow uh, is the Feast of the Presentation. And I know that that is mm -hmm. celebrated in a big way uh, in Italy. Yeah. Uh, while here in America, most people are thinking about uh, Puxitani, Phil, and Groundhog Day. Right. Well, actually, our minds aren't too far away because uh, we also have some traditional Traditions that are similar to that. In fact, what we say here is that a, that the the Madonna della Candelora. We say Candelora instead of Candelmas, and so um, 
when uh, when the Madonna della Candelora she prays, and if the weather is bad, it means that winter is going to continue. But let me tell you, on the other hand, if you go to Puglia's Puglia, Italy, Puglia's say that if the, the if it doesn't rain on the day of Candlemas, then winter will end. Uh, and in other parts, they say if you have rain and snow, then winter will end. So it depends on where you are and what they decide. But of course, this is the day where Italians will bring their candles to Mass. Those candles will be blessed, especially reminding us as as winter comes to an end that Christ is the authentic light in the darkness. We're remembering the presentation of Christ in the temple 40 days after his birth and that the blessing of the candles symbolizes that unending light of Christ, John. And it is uh, the end of the Christmas season. I I imagine that means that uh, all of the Christmas decorations still in many of the churches there in Rome uh, will be going away. Yes, exactly. It's sad to see it happen. All the presepe, the nativity scenes, will go away until next year on December 8th, the Feast of the Immaculate Conception, when they'll come back out. And uh, the Christmas decorations that are hanging outside of stores and boutiques and restaurants are about to come down. But it's certainly been a beautiful season of celebration here. Well, we... uh... Continue to pray to the Madonna de la Candelara. Bravo, <laughs> hey, bravo. I am learning a little bit at a time. Ashley, congratulations once again uh, on your 15th wedding anniversary. Thanks so much uh, oh, for being with you. us and for sharing uh, with our audience, really authentically bringing Rome to home this morning. Praise God. Well, it is such a pleasure. Thank you so much for your auguri and all the best. Grazie, grazie. Ashley Narona, our Rome correspondent who joins us every Wednesday from the Eternal City. You can listen to her reports on the Relevant Radio app. Just go to Relevant in Rome. We need to take a short break when Morning Air continues. Chad Garcia, Vice President of the Schwartz Investment Council, Inc., uh, the lead portfolio manager of the Ave Maria Focus Fund, will give us his take on the $31.4 trillion debt ceiling set by Congress and uh, the latest news on that. So stay with us. There is much more to come as Morning Air continues on this Wednesday here on Relevant Radio and the Relevant Radio app. up, America. It's Morning Air with John Morales, Sarah Tafoya, and Glenn Leverett. Jump into the conversation. Call 888-914-9149. And welcome back to Morning Air. I'm John Morales along with Glenn and Sarah. Thanks so much for joining us on this Wednesday morning. Our power scripture from the Playbook of Life is from Matthew 6.33. Our blessed Lord Jesus says, But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things shall be yours as well. The legendary NFL coach Vince Lombardi used to say, God, family, Green Bay Packers. Even though I'm a Bears fan, his words are a powerful reminder. We need to put God number one in our life, then our family, and then our profession or vocation. The Lord needs to be number one in our life, and then everything else falls into place. Make Jesus the Lord of your life, and we always pray with great confidence, Jesus, I trust in you. Our number 
if you want to be part of the program, 888-914-9149. Now, last month on January 19th, our nation hit its $31.4 trillion debt ceiling set by Congress. Uh, Janet Yelling, the Treasury Secretary, informed Congress that she is taking extraordinary measures to keep paying the bills on time and to stop uh, the catastrophic consequences of a default. In fact, President Biden and House Speaker Republican Kevin McCarthy are scheduled to meet today about increasing that debt ceiling. In fact, since 1960, it's been raised... Uh, 78 times, most recently back in 2021. Uh, They've suspended the debt limit seven times since 2013. Joining us now for more perspective on this uh, potential uh, crisis situation is Chad Garcia, Vice President of Schwartz Investment Council, Inc., uh, the lead portfolio manager of the Ave Maria Focus Fund and co-portfolio manager of the Ave Maria Growth Fund. Good morning, Chad. Uh, Thanks for joining us. It's uh, great to be with you once again. Perfect timing here this morning. It's good to be with you as well. Uh, Chad, can you uh, give us uh, an overall perspective uh, of our nation hitting uh, the $31.4 trillion debt ceiling set by Congress last month and what it means uh, for uh, us, the American people? Well, we have a we have a debt ceiling that the uh, national debt has hit it at $31.4 trillion. $8 trillion of that was added to the national debt during COVID. And so in order to keep the, the government functioning and to not default on our national debt, Janet Yellen, has informed Congress that she needs to take some extraordinary measures to keep the bills paying. And, you know, this is basically just some accounting tricks that she can employ that extends the issue until, you know, mid this summer. So that she's basically giving Congress until midsummer to, to figure this out. And, you know, as you said, we've been in this several times, the most recent time was in 2011. The Republicans in Congress will want to extract concessions, which means cuts in spending, and they'll use the leverage of the upcoming you know, potential default to do it. Well, Chad, uh, can, can, as, as I mentioned, you know, the, the president is meeting with um, with Speaker McCarthy uh, uh, today on this issue. Uh, can you explain to us why, um, if, if our country defaulted on its debt, it would be an absolute ca- catastrophe? Well, I, I don't think it's going to happen. But, um, I mean, there, there would be two types of defaults. You know, there would be – the worst default would be a true default where we can't make our interest payments – or our debt payments. The government has plenty of, of cash to make these payments, plenty of cash coming in through tax revenue. Uh, there would there could be a, a technical default if the government stops planned spending, um, but a, a, a default would be catastrophic because it would destroy the confidence in the US dollar, which 
would cause the do- dollar to, to lose its value and impair the savings and wealth of, of U.S. citizens and investors. Um, furthermore, it would have implications globally because the U.S. Treasury bill and T-bonds are what is called risk-free assets. And so every financial security is priced on a spread to the the, the T-bills and T-bonds depending upon the, the duration of, of the financial security. Well, so we pray that remove, this doesn't... If you remove the risk-free aspirate, then... Yeah, I was going to say, yeah, we just pray that this doesn't happen. Obviously, uh, cooler heads uh, prevail, and uh, we, the last thing we need is any more economic, uh, uh, you know, catastrophes. Uh, can you talk a little bit about uh, some of these uh, extraordinary steps uh, that the uh, Treasury Secretary is taking, and uh, and the and the precedent uh, for for doing this? Sure. Well, what she's doing is she is not reinvesting some of the interest that is earned from some government pension plans. And so if she places the the interest earned into accounts that bear interest off based on U.S. Treasury bills or, or Treasury bonds, then it counts towards the, the national debt. So by with, withholding that from those accounts, she can lower the national debt and keep it below the the, the ceiling. It's a, it's a complete accounting game. Um, but as far as the precedent for accounting games to stay off default, I just read a, a biography on on Alexander Hamilton, our first Treasury Secretary, and he even employed such such schemes when when he had to. Do you think that uh, we are uh, in a real fight uh, between the Democrats and Republicans uh, on how to deal with this? It's right for the Republicans to ex- extract concessions with respect to spending. I mean, the, the national debt is high, and we need to get that under control. Um, if they use this position to extract cuts and, and come to a deal where the debt ceiling gets raised, but there are but the, the pace of spending going forward is lower, then I think that's the right case to. That's the right. That's the right path for them. Your gut feeling as to uh, how do you think this is going to uh, play out? Well, I think it's going to be you know, ugly between now and and midsummer. I think that this Congress in particular is off to a very slow start. You had several votes to elect the speaker. It's the it's a you have a a very slim. Republican majority. I think what we'll see happening is you're going to have both parties introduce bills that essentially pander to their respective bases. If you look at the Republicans, there's some bills to eliminate the IRS. The Democrats are going to put in some massive spending bills. Most of these will not get passed. And then, you know, they'll work towards a resolution this summer. Well, the good news is is uh, that we have the Ave Maria funds. How are they doing? They're doing great. Uh, last year, several in our funds, several of our funds um, were in the top ten percent relative to their peers. Uh, the other two funds were in the top third relative to the peer. 
The Avamira Focus Fund is off to a great start this year. Just closed out the month of January up 16.7%. So I'm pretty excited about that. Well, th- this is great news. So we should uh, be not afraid. To, uh, at least we know that uh, Ave Maria funds uh, are are doing uh, f- fantastic. And uh, I really do uh, appreciate uh, your perspective uh, on the debt ceiling here for our nation. Thanks so much uh, for joining us, Chad. My pleasure. Chad Garcia, Vice President of Schwartz Investment Council, Inc., and the lead portfolio manager of the Ave Maria Focus Fund. And now it's time for another edition of Glenn Story Corner. Digging way back for a classic today, our story called The Hospital Window. There were two men, both seriously ill, who shared the same hospital room. One man got a bed next to the room's only window. The man was allowed to sit up in his bed for an hour each afternoon to help him drain fluids from his lungs. The other man had to spend all his time lying flat on his back. The two roommates quickly bonded and started talking for hours on end. They talked about their lives, their jobs, children, wives. One day, the man furthest from the window expressed how he envied the man near the window. From that day on, the man near the window started describing all the things he could see outside the window. The window overlooked a lovely park with a lake. Ducks played on the lake while children sailed their model boats. Young lovers walked arm in arm amidst flowers of every color, and a fine view of the city skyline could be seen in the distance. The man on the other bed began to live for those one-hour sessions where he could hear and visualize the world outside the hospital room. That one hour each day would broaden his world, and he'd be enlivened by all the activity and color of the world outside. One afternoon, the man by the window described a parade passing by. Although the other man could not hear the band, he could visualize it as the man described it vividly, looking out the window. Days and weeks passed. One morning, a nurse arrived to examine the condition of the two patients, and she found the lifeless body of the man by the window. The man had peacefully died in his sleep. The nurse sadly called the hospital attendants to take the body away. The other man grieved the death of his roommates, but as the days passed by, he started missing the way his roommate described the view out the window. In hopes of having a peek out that window in the beautiful world outside, the other man asked if he could be moved next to the window. The nurse happily made the switch. As soon as he was comfortable in his new bed, the man slowly and painfully propped himself up to try and take his first look at the world outside. The nurse delightfully watched as the man attempted to sit on the bed after weeks. But as he strained to slowly turn to look out the window beside him, he was stunned to see a blank wall outside the window. The now agitated man asked the nurse what could have made his roommate lie about the view outside the window. There's nothing to see from here. Where are all the wonderful things he saw? He described everything so vividly. Is this new construction? Why did he give me such vivid details that don't exist? He asked. The nurse shook her head and answered, Perhaps he just wanted to encourage you and make you happy. You see, your roommate was totally blind. 1 Thessalonians 5.11 Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up, as indeed you do. As always, thanks so much, uh, Glenn. Coming up next hour here on Morning Air, we'll talk about the huge victory for pro-life Catholic family man Mark Hauk with his attorney Peter Bream of the Thomas More Society. Our spiritual uh, director, Father Marcel Tyone, will join us to talk about St. John Bosco and his saintly advice on discipline for our kids. And personal success coach Dave Durant will tell us about seven ways to inspire your team your family, or your group. Stay with us. There is much more to come in the final hour of Morning Air here on Relevant Radio and the Relevant Radio app.